0: James Kandasami.
1: Hey, audience. Welcome today to Achieve Wealth Podcast. I'm James Kandasami and we're going to be talking to Jason Perro from Pennsylvania. Uh, Jason owns almost uh, around 900 units, uh, but the fun part is, you know, he has like over 600 units on his own, and a lot of it's at duplexes, quads, and small multifamilies, right? And he recently started syndicating around 300 units of... Uh, Hey, Jason, welcome to the
2: show. Hey, thanks for having me, James. I'm glad to be here. Awesome.
1: Thanks for coming in to the show. I'm always impressed with the people who has built up that many unit counts, 600 units on your own without syndication, right? So you're basically an independent rental owner, what we call it. Uh, I just want to go deeper into that. Uh, Can you briefly describe how did you accumulate these 600 units and how many years did it take?
2: Sure. Uh, so So, my wife and I started in two thousand and one um, you know we were uh, not, even before we were married you know a few years out of college and we bought our first duplex and, and we did it the old fashioned way we saved you know we, we both worked we saved one person's salary and saved that towards our down payments and, and we would go with you know just traditional bank financing 15 year mortgages you know seventy five percent loan to value um, and, and we just went really slow and steady early on. So in 2001, it was a two unit in 2002, it was another two unit and a four unit. And then the next year it was a, a four unit. The next so year-
1: hold on. I need to clarify something. So you, did you come out from college and start doing this?
2: Yeah. So I graduated in 1999. Um, oh, okay. And, and started working okay. and, and uh, I didn't know a whole lot about money growing up and mm-hmm. started, you know, making a little bit of money out of college and, and, mm-hmm. uh, but I realized I wanted I wanted at that time I just, I just wanted to be, build wealth and be a millionaire, you know wow. all that kind of stuff. And um, I, I learned one of my internships I, I learned about rental properties, and and that seems like all the wealthy people had their money in real estate. Okay. So, so I, I, you know, sort of doing all my research and reading books, and 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 trying to uh, talk to different people that own real estate. And um, so you know we. we were able to do that in 2001 and, and um, you know, just kind of went slow and steady. And so my, my wife worked as a pharmaceutical sales representative. I did that for a few years as well and then got into medical device sales. And so as we, you know, each year we'd buy a few rental properties and along the way, you know, I, we, some some sort of like career changing deal would come along, you know. Mm. Uh, 2005, um, you know, we'd build up to 23 units and then all of a sudden, uh, met a guy that had 56 units for sale that he was willing to hold a paper on and owner finance, and so that took us from 23 to 79 overnight. And then we just kind of kept the same the same process, saving our money, um, you know, buying a property, couple properties a year, and then 2008 hit, and there was a ton of property that was getting foreclosed on. So I was buying up singles and doubles and triples as fast as I could, you know, uh, rehabbing them. then refinancing them, getting my money back and, and repeating the process. So we did a lot of that from like 08 through 2012 when I left my day job. So at that time we had about 290 units. Um, and again, we were living like way below our means, uh, reinvesting everything back into the business. Um, so, so we just put a ton of our own sweat and money into, into the properties in those early years. Um, and we just kept to you know and kept buying over the last several years. But so it's been seven years since I left my day job. And um, when I was working, you know, working a W 2 job um, for a living, I'd always said I was a little bit um, nervous to take on private money or deal with another investor because I just felt from a just like maybe I was afraid, but I felt like from a mental and emotional standpoint, I wanted to be there for that investor. I didn't want anything to go wrong. And I, I knew. If I was a traveling salesperson and I'm working three hours away, God forbid something goes wrong. I don't want to like, I didn't want anything to happen to that investor's money. So um, okay. once I, once I quit the day job and sort of, you know, like on my own, in my, you know, in my own portfolio every day, um, started networking with and meeting private, you know, private lenders, private investors, and did a bunch of that um, over a period of years. So you know, more properties that were owner finance, um, you know, more of these like, you know, hard money loans from, you know, loan sharks, you know, guys that want to charge you 10, 12, mm-hmm. 15%, but we're able to get into, you know, more and more properties like that. And all the while kind of heard about syndication, knew what it was, um, didn't really have the confidence, I, I think, it, or just was missing like one one piece of the puzzle. And Honestly, when you and I met at Rod Cleve's house a little over a year year and a half ago, Mm -hmm. um, something in that weekend just clicked. I said, "No, I know how to do this. This is is easy." And and from that, be easier than buying. Yeah, yeah, and uh, um, and then from that point on, you know, I found a great deal. Like the first syndication we did, found a great deal that we were able to bring investors in on. Then found another, you know, now we have another thing in the pipeline. So it um, just everything kind of builds on itself. You know and have this natural progression so sorry that was
1: a really long answer <laughs> yeah i mean i really enjoyed but i want to go a big, a bit back to the beginning you when you started right? because a lot of fresh out of school right a lot of uh, graduates or anybody coming out from school you know i'm just trying to see how they can get the similar mindset right how can they walk that steps that you took? Because you said you graduated in 1999 and 2001, you started buying and you said your hunch for real estate, you got it during your internship, right? So, yeah. so but was there like any mentor to tell you to buy or you think that, okay, I can do this? And uh, what, what was that aha moment that, that pushed you towards that comfort? I mean, out, out of your comfort zone to buy your first uh, house.
2: So when um, I'll back up to when, so when I had to, uh, when I was in college, I did a number of internships with um, financial planning companies. My original okay. career, I thought I was going to be a financial planner. I okay. never did that, but I uh, did a few internships, and what, during one of them, um, the financial planners had to have me going through clients' uh, files and setting up appointments um, to meet with them. and And one of the things I, I'm sitting there learning, and I'm like, oh my gosh, you know, how does how does like a dual income family, like a doctor and a lawyer Only have a net worth of you know they're making a half million dollars a year, but their net worth is like fifty thousand dollars, you know. And and then I'd see another file that uh, you know these two school teachers maybe making a combined income of seventy five or eighty thousand a year had a net worth of like five million. And I was like, oh well, they own a bunch of rental properties, and and I'm like, well, what what's that? And so somebody kind of gave me the um, you know that well, hey, this is how the you know a lot of wealthy people have money in real estate, so. Got, got thinking, and I really wanted to go down that path and I, I uh, of, of becoming a millionaire, and, and well, how do I do that? And I, I read Rich Dad, Poor Dad, I read The Millionaire Next Door, so it was, you know, The Millionaire Next Door talks about, you know, living below your means, and that most millionaires, you know, don't drive, um, you know, Lamborghinis, but they drive, you know, uh, a nice used Honda or Toyota, and, and things like that, so it was reading, learning, the, you know, learning some of these mindset things, and Um, first job out of college, I was a kind of an entry level sales job, but, uh, there was a guy there that had had a few rental properties and, and so then I'm like, man, this seems really interesting. Um, you know, what do you do? How do you do it? And I started asking him questions and, and, um, he was telling me to read the same books that I had just read and, Mm -hmm. and kind of the pieces were coming together. I'm like, well, if I want to be a millionaire, I have to make my money work for, you know, work for me. And, and so I was, you know, I was putting money in my 401k and, starting IRAs, but I also saved every available penny I could and, um, talked to, so then I was talking around to family, friends and, um, just, you know, maybe like kind of not real mentors, but people that were maybe my parents' age that I knew, you know, that they knew. And I said, Hey, does anybody know about rental property? And it turns out that one of their, one of their friends or people they were acquainted with, um, rental property. And, and they said, Hey, you know, uh, you know, we, we might have a property for sale. Um, you know, hey, come take a look at it. And it was like a $32,000 duplex. And it, uh-huh. I mean, not a lot to speak of, but i had saved up, you know, about $5,000 and there was enough for like uh, at the time they had like, like first time home buyer loan program. So I had enough money for a down payment, um, got a decent loan on it. So I, I only had to put like 10% down, then closing costs and all, you know, all that kind of stuff. But got into it. And, and the rents at that time were like for two, two bedroom apartments, they were $375 a month. Mm-hmm. And I raised the rents to 500 got it. and all of a sudden I'm making money. And I said, wow, this you know, is these cool. are paying for my student loans. I need yeah. to buy another one so I can pay for my car payment. And I just I started <laughs> thinking about it in that, those terms. And so like, the, they were a mentor in a sense that the guys that sold me my first series of properties, because I mean, they they were the typical, like, like they had a W2 job, you know, retired from that. Um, you know, after, you know, 40 years in a gold watch kind of thing, but they had, you know, they at their peak, they maybe had 25 or 30 rental units. And um, you know, they never saw real estate as a full-time endeavor, but they saw it as, Hey, it's a great way to build extra wealth for retirement. And so mm-hmm. um, I kind of, um, I remember it vividly. I bought several pr- properties from these guys, and, and I met this guy, the first formal mentor I had in the business in 2005. And I was I was doing my walkthrough of this property with with the guys that sold me a handful of my first units. And We were on top of a roof, you know, looking at this roof on, on the property I was looking to buy. And I asked them. I said, "Hey, I met this really interesting guy by the name of uh, Richard, and and uh, you know, he has 130 rentals. That's all he does." You know, what, do you, what do you think about like, real estate as a full-time thing? And, and he he, and he said, man, I, I don't know. I don't know how anybody could do this full-time. Um, and he just really poo-pooed the idea. But then I met, met and went with this guy, Richard. He goes by the name Dick. But I met with Dick, and, and I was like really impressed with this guy. He shows me all of his rental properties and says, hey, I'll, you, know, you give me 10% down, and I'll hold the paper. And and he seemed like you know, he had a really good job at, with General Electric. He um, you know, was a nice enough guy, but you know, he had this little empire of like properties. I thought that was the coolest thing in the world. And he was making it at, at the time, what I thought was a lot of money. Um, and, and he was doing a lot of good things. You know, he had enough money to get back to charity and he seemed to travel and do like live, you know, life that he wanted to live and he worked hard, but he didn't have to work for the man. You know, he was, yeah. you know, he was doing his own thing. And so he, you know, after we closed on that 56 unit deal, he really became that mentor, to me. And I've, it always stuck with me that, you know, even though we've sort of grown apart and we don't see each other nearly as much as I'd like to these days, um, I've sort of taken what he's done for me. And I try to do that with a lot of younger investors. And I, I just was telling somebody this a week or two ago that I feel like our industry is, I mean, certainly there's people that don't want to help, but I would say more often than not there, there's, there's people more than willing to show others the path and say, Hey, look, I, you know, I think I can help you out. You know, I mean, you don't want anybody to take too much of your time um, and, and make it a full-time job to mentor somebody. But I think, you know, as a group, most of us real estate entrepreneurs tend That's to be people, right. And, yep. and uh, just like to, just like it kind of, you know, as, as some people showed you the way coming into it, other people, you know, you can help these younger guys and gals out too. So I think, you know, for your younger audience members, like the key is maybe just to try and, you know, just try and meet people that have been doing it become friendly with them, you know, ask them questions. And they're, mm-hmm. you know, we all like to talk about our our successes and our failures and all that stuff. And and that's in the, you know, you buy them a coffee or a beer, or a lunch or something like that. And, you know, and, Absolutely. and you can soak it up.
1: Yeah. Yep. Yeah. yeah. I mean, that's just a very impressive, uh, build up of your, you know, your rental portfolio. And, and, and I'm just trying to get that, um, time where you were pushed over the cliff, right? So, I mean, push over the cliff to be successful, right? And I think you're, the reason why you, I mean, you can correct me. I mean, you had a lot of desire to become a millionaire, right? So after your school cool. and you saw that, you have a lot of desire. And you went and seeked out a lot of information from different people, right? And then, uh, so I think that has really, has, I think it's some, a mindset that you really want to do it has pushed you towards buying all this rental, taking all that information and you know really taking action right, which I think is very impressive and a lot of uh, college drop uh, not college graduates uh, or any grad any high school graduate anybody who have finished their studies, you know they can do exactly as what you're doing, right but they have to have that desire to come to your level right to be a millionaire and go and seek that information, take the take the risk right. Uh, so I think that's that's what you've done very well up to now, right? And and you are right. Usually, real estate entrepreneurs usually share a lot of information, and it's just whether the whoever receiving the information is going to go and take action or not, right? That's yeah. very important. So that's that's very very interesting. And um, the nine hundred units that you have, a lot of it is duplexes, quads. And can you like, I mean, out of the six hundred units that you own on your own, I think three hundred is syndicated. So how many of it is duplexes, quads, and how many of it is like a small multifamily? Do you have that number?
2: Yeah, so I, um, out of that 600, there's about 120 that I've ended up, um, well, I I still technically own, but I'm holding the paper. I've sold them on land contract, and and so, yeah, so about 120 to 150 that are that smaller single-family duplex, quad, um, and, and I've... Try to hold on to the things that are, say, eight units or above, and got it. Um, and I think for every big deal we do, um, I sort of have this internal like mental rule that trying to evolve the portfolio. And so, you know, with a lot of that smaller stuff, um, you know, it's starting to spin off of the the smaller properties, and whether it's selling it to uh, and holding the financing to an up and coming real estate investor or Um, you know, just, just selling it on the open market and divesting of it. Um, I think, you know, every time you pick up a 205 unit Mm -hmm. or a hundred unit, you know, that becomes, um, you know, that becomes your focus. And then, um, you know, you don't want the the quality of service or the quality of of that duplex or quad to suffer. You just, you kind of graduate and move on into newer things. And so at some point, you know, you know, in all of our careers, a, a 10 unit or 20 unit seemed to be the biggest thing in the world, but you know, ultimately when you close bigger and bigger projects, um, that becomes, you know, that becomes so, so small, right? Yeah. yeah. So I think it's important to, to evolve the portfolio. And so we have been in the process of trying to spin off the smaller properties, but in a, in a but in a controlled, smart way. So we're not, you know, uh, you know, you don't want to give them away, but at the same time, I don't want to be managing those same things 10 or 20 years from now either.
1: Yeah, yeah. So, do you think? I mean, right now you have moved from duplex squad to smaller multifamilies, you know, fifty something units, and you said you hold a note for hundred something units. Now you have moved to like you know two hundred unit syndication, hundred unit syndication, right? So, why did you move from owning on your own to a syndication model?
2: So um, it was interesting. I I I knew at some point that um, if, if real estate is all that I did, I'd run out of my own available money you know, we have to have money to live on and, you know, you reinvest into the business, but in order to take down, say, a 4 million or a $10 million project, um, you know, it took me a while to wrap my head around that. I used to think that, okay, I'll refinance my portfolio and use that money to buy into a larger property. Um, but as you see with a lot of these larger properties, that the types that people raise money for a syndication is the timeline. is a heck of a lot faster than what you can do a refinancing. So, Mm -hmm. Realize that, you know, if you want to lock up a hundred unit property, you know, you 60 days, 90 days. I mean, these processes move fairly quickly. Um, So that was one thing. Um, The other, the other part was, you know, I I became friends um, with a gentleman that was my co-GP on the units we syndicated. And, you know, we, we really said, Hey, we we should buy real estate together. And we, you know, we can create some sort of offering. And I, I just wasn't thinking big enough. And then when this 86 unit came along, um, I, I said, this is, this is perfect. The light bulb went off and said, Hey, we need to raise a million and a half dollars, you know, and we'll go out and get agency financing. And, and it, it just, it went really easy. And you know, you can still end up having the control. So for me, a little bit of it was control, a little bit of, a little bit of it was, I mean, not just from an ego standpoint, but you know, I think we do a really great job of, of running and managing the property. Um, you know, I I, I like the idea of being a majority owner of the property. So I felt like, well, yeah, maybe I only own 15% of the deal, but I'm the majority owner as a 15% owner of the deal. And um, and then you can get into higher quality property, property that appreciates as the economy goes. You know, we can uh be much more manipulated by cap rates and, and just has a much higher upside. And um I guess what I like to say predictability. So the problem I found with the duplexes and the quads was that sure I can make the same amount of money every year, but it was a heck of a lot of work mm-hmm. and it could be really you know, unpredictable. You could have, uh, you know, two, two both units in a duplex become vacant in a month and then you're hundred percent vacant Correct. and it's wildly unpredictable. And uh, as you scale. And so um, I found with like the larger properties, you know, if you run it tight and you, you have you know good, good management and you pay attention to the details, you know, you can, sure, you you know, you can predict what your income is gonna be every month. And I just got to a point in my life where I'm like, I I just want a steady paycheck out of this business. I don't wanna, you know, I don't wanna have that level of unpredictability. And so, you know, from from a syndication standpoint, um, hey, you know, you get a distribution every quarter. Um, You know, as the GP, you know, we have have that piece and it becomes something where um, you're within a few percentage points of, of what you budget and plan out every year. And I found that um, that was that other aha moment. So with my, some of my smaller and, and even medium sized multifamily properties, the 25 units and the 50 unit type of thing that I had, is that I went back and I, I had a 26 unit I bought in 2008. And I ran the numbers every year from 2008. And I've never like, I've never made more or less than a few thousand dollars. Like, for instance, mm-hmm. that property makes one hundred fifteen thousand a year on average. Mm-hmm. It's never been below one hundred twelve and never been above one hundred eighteen. <laughs> <laughs> okay, <laughs> you know, man, that's a clue. And, and and I looked at my other properties like that. And yeah, they're all within a few, you know, a few thousand of each other. And I said, well, this is a lot better than, than chasing down this, you know that single family home that that becomes vacant and sits sits vacant for four months because you've got to paw the trash and you know carpet mm-hmm. and, and exterminate and do all those things. So. I just, you know, it was one of those things I sort of self-realized as, as, uh, as we went on is, yeah, this, these larger properties, if you run them well, just create that level of predictability um, that, that you want as an owner. But I would say that it's really easy to sell to somebody looking to invest passively in your deal that, okay, if we modeled this correctly, you know, this deal correctly, then you're going to get, you know, this, you know, this return on your investment every quarter, every year that, that you're involved in the deal.
1: So the predictability has become very key, I guess, and the scalability, right? because you have a lot more units and you know you would have budgeted for occupancy loss and I mean uh, uh, vacancies and expenses and all that in the bigger one. And it, yeah. you have a lot more uh, room for error right, in terms of occupancy, I would say, compared to a single family and the duplexes. Uh, right. So say, right. Interesting. So was the experience that you gained from quads and duplexes, did, did it help you out? When you come to syndication and run this bigger, larger properties,
2: hundred percent. I mean, I think a couple of things. I mean, I think having my own money into the business and building it with with my wife's and my own harder money. Um, you know, you win. You know, the the wins are all yours, and the and the mistakes are all yours too. And and so, um, you know, we we started out painting our own units, cutting our own grass. You know, leasing the units up ourselves, and then even for building, you know, our own employee uh, employees. I mean. You know it was uh, us kind of managing those employees a lot early on and um, dealing with tenants i mean dealing with with tough situations so you know if it comes down to me managing a property manager you know i've I've got that track, not that I know at all I mean I still feel like I'm learning every day, but I have that some level of experience to say like well, hey, here's here's how we should handle this situation because you know we've seen this or so this is the type of scenario that that we've dealt with and and I think um when it came down to raising money for these last couple of deals, um, having a track record and saying, you know what, I, I've not only have I learned how to finance properties, not only have I learned how to manage properties, um, you know, we dealt with private money, we dealt with tenants, we sort of worked at all aspects of the business. I think that that, that's just that, that, you know, earning your doctorate in this business or earning your degree in this business. Um, and I think it helps to start out small. Now, I would just say that that's not for everybody. I see some people that are wildly successful jumping into really large syndications. And I, I certainly would never talk down um, people's hopes and dreams and goals to, to go big. But I think that, um, you know, to weather the storms and deal with difficult scenarios and difficult situations, it's always good to, to have some level of something, something that you've done on your own, whether it's, you know, whether it's small and, and um, you know, it, so syndication doesn't become the only you know, it's not the only way to make money in, in this business. You know, a lot of, a lot of us that syndicate do a lot of other things. So you cell phone, the people may flip, they may be a realtor they may be involved in different things. So I, I just think that having that background and, and experience, you know, um, w- with smaller properties, uh, building a team, uh, those are all, those are all things that come in really handy. Um, you know, as, as it relates to, uh, uh, you know, to, to the larger,
1: to larger the larger ones. Yeah. Yeah. I'm a strong believer of uh, coming, growing from small, right? Even from single family, quads, duplexes, and then growing. I mean, I know people go direct to, let's start with hundred units plus, right? A lot of gurus teachers there because there's so much money out there and they say yeah. you can syndicate. But I think the problem, as you mentioned, right, when when the storm uh, comes in, right, I mean, you may not know what happens when when the vacancy drops, right? You may not understand the tenant profile, why certain tenant leaving, right? Especially you're giving to third-party management. So you are basically a pure syndicator, right? You're just a a guy who raised money, found the deal and trying to run a business plan on a booming market, right? (laughs) I mean, We know a lot of people have been successful, but all this a lot of people has been successful in the past uh, nine to 10 years of expansion, right? So we do not know whether they are good or the market was good, right? So (laughs) we will know once the market turns, right? So how much people know about the science of real estate? I mean, there's so much of things in real estate, like contractor management, right? Understanding tenant demographic, right? When people move in, walk in, how's the leasing experience? There's so much of science behind it. You wouldn't understand it if you are in a strong market, right? You think, oh, it's going up to ninety-five percent occupied. Oh, I'm making money. Oh, cap rate is comprising. Nothing in, on your effort, right? But when the cap rate is decompresses, right? That's then when, they, when the tenants leave or when when your market is not doing very well. I mean, you have to have that skills to to manage that budget, to manage that uh, shift, right? And and uh, I think I think it's important to start from uh, from small. That's what I feel. I mean.
2: I'll give you an example. I had, um, since we self-managed, I, um, I mean, I, I'm not the one out you know, showing units and advertising the units, but mm-hmm. uh, I was between property managers, had one guy phasing out and he actually bought uh, several properties from me. And, and so he, he had, you know, he kind of graduated into, you know, being his own you know, full-time investor. And I had a new guy coming on and we were about a month in between. And the, the first deal I syndicated, it's an 86 unit property. It had 16 vacancies. Mm -hmm. And I'm like, you know, not only am I an investor on the general side, I put my money in as a limited. Well, I can't let you 16 vacancies. So Mm -hmm. I went out and I I showed units myself. I I got things rented and did the hard work. Not not that my time shouldn't be spent doing that. I don't love that. Um, But I know how to do it from years and years of doing it early on. Um, So I went out and I got, um, you know, I got like a dozen units rented in a month and, and got that down to four. Out of eighty six, and, and then when our new property manager started, he was able to just kind of hit you know hit the ground running. But um, so I think that that's like an example of why it's good to to be able to you know have that experience. And like you you mentioned contractor management, I mean um, you know you just recently I I, I know you have seen your uh, uh, had a disaster at one of your properties. And, mm-hmm. you know, if you don't know how to deal with contractors and negotiate the best price and make sure they're showing up to work every day yeah. and keeping things on a schedule, um, you know things can go really wrong when. Um, you know, when, when things go sideways in the business, you have to have that sort of that, that people management side of it from dealing with tenants to contractors and banks and all, all of that kind of stuff.
1: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I just came back, I mean, before this podcast, I was sitting like almost two hours with my one of, in one of my property, which we are recovering with my property manager, regional and planning out the make ready, you know, plan, right. And how do we do this? Because sometimes you know you can't expect them to do that whole plan right I mean sometimes yeah. we have a lot more planning skills and I have to tell them plan day one, do this how many units so I have to give them each plan so that we recover very quickly and and uh you can't do that if you don't have the real uh you know single family or quads or duplexes uh you know construction experience right you can't do that because you're gonna be taking the words from the property manager or your regional right <laughs> right yeah. so so uh, yeah, I think it's 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 I think it's important that uh, you, you really learn the science of real estate, especially now when the market's good, right? Yeah. It, it's hard to learn when the market's bad because things are really going wrong at that time, <laughs> right? So uh, that's very interesting. So how is Pennsylvania market? Can you describe it? I mean, I never interviewed anybody from Pennsylvania and, and I like to understand the market and how do you underwrite uh, the deals over there? So at high level, you you did all your deals in Pennsylvania because you lived there, I guess, as your backyard. I
2: did. By default, when I started out buying singles and doubles, I, and we were doing it ourselves. I didn't know any other way. I'm like, why would I buy something in Cleveland? And I got to drive an hour and a half every every day to Cleveland. So, um, you know, Pennsylvania is a, a funny state. So we have uh, Philadelphia on one side of the state, mm-hmm. um, Pittsburgh on the other side of the state, and in between, and no offense to anybody else in Pennsylvania, but it's it's like it's Kentucky. I mean, it's just farms and everything else. And it's not, um, there's not a whole lot of population, but you know, there's, there's areas like Harrisburg, Scranton, Erie, where I live. And and so there's these tertiary markets. And so, um, you know, Philadelphia and Pittsburgh are like any other bigger market where cap rates are, you know, compressed and and there's, and and they have a ton of population. There's a ton of employment. Um, But I'm a big fan of the tertiary markets and, and places like Erie, Pennsylvania or York, Pennsylvania, or even like like Dayton, Ohio, I'd consider a, a tertiary market. Uh, Canton, Ohio, Akron, Ohio, like, um, you know, Rochester, New York is a secondary market, but maybe a smaller town around that, for instance. Mm-hmm. So, and my reasoning being that, um, you know, when um, you know, we have areas like Denver and Nashville, or Austin, Texas that had, you know, over a period of time had, you know, net population growth of, you know, Million people or more over a ten-year period when 2008 happened or after 9/11, and you know there was this um, you know huge pullback in the economy and people were losing jobs and employers you know unemployment goes up to eight or um, nine percent. Those are areas where people are losing jobs. Those are areas where the rents kind of pull back because you know, all of a sudden there's these in multifamily you know you do value add after value add and rents have reached this peak. At some point when the economy turns, those rents have to pull back. So the flip side is where there's not a ton of growth like like in Erie, Pennsylvania, it is slow and steady. So, you know, in 2008, um, home sales slowed down, but nothing, but the values never went the other way. And and then we still live in an area where, you know, we have several universities, we have several hospitals, we have the the nation's largest medical school uh, in Erie, Pennsylvania, and and so there's a lot of students, there's um, manufacturing jobs, there's other like medical and some technical type jobs, but um, just a smaller geographic area, smaller economy. Now, the downside is, you know, we never have this wild boom in prices and, uh, you know, you, don't, you can't really ever bank on a lot of appreciation. But at the same token, when, when the economy pulls back, um, you know, our rental base really isn't going to be affected. So... For instance, if I have a seven or eight hundred dollar a month apartment, and you know twenty tenants lose their jobs, well, they'll still be able to afford their rent on unemployment. You know, it may be tough for them, but it's not as though they're paying fifteen hundred dollars a month rent. And so, um, so I look at it from a practical standpoint that well, I should be able to you know maintain my occupancy levels and, and fight through an economic downturn. Um, and so, the, the nice thing with Erie and, and I. And it kind of proved itself out in this last syndication. We had several people from out of state uh, come in and really liked the idea that there's this level of predict- predictability that, mm-hmm. okay, when the market turns, you know, we're not going to lose, a, you know, hundred thousand jobs in Erie
0: because there's a hundred thousand people
2: that live in the city of Erie and there's another 250,000 that live in, in the surrounding County. So our greater Metro area is about three hundred three hundred fifty thousand 350,000 people. That's still sort of a small area. And, and, you know, the largest employer might employ, uh, you know, five thousand people, and there's several larger small employers like that. But um, so, so the economy's set, sort of stable. You know, you go to Gary, Indiana, or places like that. Same thing. Um, and so, the other thing that would protect somebody on the downside is just making sure you have optimal financing locked in. Don't, you know, um, for our most recent deal, we locked into twelve-year fixed as opposed to ten-year fixed. Uh, even though the p- prepayment um, or yield maintenance is up is to nine and a half years, you know, we have a little bit of flexibility. So if, if we are in an economic downturn, um, you know, I saw it in 2008, see a lot of people lose their investment. Um, you know, I think, you know, locking into something that gives you that flexibility to whether, you know, a national or international economic downturn, at least for a few years, you know, not that you can totally time the market, but you have enough flexibility to when you want to exit, exit the property. Um, but You know, it's not just Pennsylvania; it's these other smaller markets. I mean, I think if if you're in it for the long haul and that's your strategy is like long-term cash flow. um, I think you know you can't really go wrong with these smaller areas. Um, You know, there's just there's jobs. You know, I mean, um, and they're not yeah they're not the highest paying jobs. They're not the growing areas, but um, you just have to have. It's a different sort of business model. You know, we told our investors in these deals, hey, this is a ten year hold, and and if you and, and we may hold it longer if you want to stay in longer, and I think that people like that idea as opposed to like doing like a three-year payback or a five-year refinance. Like we're just holding into it longer, and I think that's it's, it's a different strategy. Um, but but it but it feels a need for investors that want sort of that long-term stability and predictability.
1: Yeah, I mean, real estate is a, is in long in the in general is a long-term play, right? So
2: yeah.
1: is Pennsylvania a landlord-friendly state? I'm not fair. sure whether you know what it means because you only buy that. You didn't compare it to Texas or anybody else. But. But as
2: you know, you know, we have friends, uh, you know, you okay. have some of the same friends around the country. And, yeah. and what I will say is it's not like California and it's not like New York. So okay. you do these horror stories where it takes months and months to evict somebody. Um, Pennsylvania is fair. There's actually some legislation to make it even better. But it, you know, speaking from a practical standpoint, if you have to evict somebody and you follow the letter of the law like, to the day, it's about 40 days. Oh, okay. That's not so bad. It's, it's not too bad. Yeah, um, correct. You know, and it's fairly easy. Uh, you know, if you're, especially if you're looking to um, terminate a lease, you know, for for behavioral issues or whatever, it's not a, um, you know, you can't get them out in ten days, but it's not, you know, you're not waiting three or four months to get rid of somebody. And, and got it. People have to if if tenants appeal. Not to get too far in the weeds, but if they appeal an eviction, you know, they have to put their money into an escrow fund. They have to. They they just don't let the tenants like. You know, dictate the policy. They, there's actual things in place that that make sure that it's it's. So overall, I'd say it's it's more more landlord friendly than most.
1: Yeah, I think it's almost similar to what we have in Texas. I'm I'm sure there are more details there, but in terms of eviction and uh, you know putting money in escrow when they get evictions and all that is similar to what we have in Texas. So, and um, what about underwriting? So when you underwrite deals, multifamily deals in Pennsylvania. Does your taxes goes up as per the purchase price and how much percent does it go up? How do you underwrite?
2: Yeah, so they, um, on smaller properties, they um, they don't. You know, I think if you're more distressed, but let's just say opportun- places where opportunity zones would be uh, occurring, um, those types of like C and D class neighborhoods, they, they wouldn't um, because the city you know, the municipality wants people to continue to invest there. But um, yeah, no, we, we we budget for a tax increase um, based on um, you know there, there's a common level ratio that you know based on the purchase price and the value of the property, I and mean, we should budget for x amount of you know x amount of dollars of a. Uh,
1: but how uh, much? How many percent do you go up to purchase price? Is it like 100 percent of purchase price times uh,
2: well, tax rate, like, or is it 80,
1: 90, 70? Yeah, it's about 80
2: percent of the, of the purchase. Okay, rate.
1: got, yeah. it. got
2: and, it. And uh, but what I would say is that. Um, you know we've appealed that before. So I had a, as an example, I bought an eight unit. Uh, it wasn't a big property. I paid uh, paid a premium for the for the deal. I paid a little more than uh, I would have sold for on the open market. But the seller had said, "Hey, look, I'm gonna I'll sell it to you at this price." They held the paper at a 25 year fixed rate at four percent, no balloon, no premium, no prepayment penalty, and I had to put five percent down. Great property. The returns are great, but it was I paid more than it was worth. Um, you know, there's, and there's different ways to look at that, but that, that was flagged on the, for a tax increase. And so, you know, we fought that and, um, you know, have made a very strong argument that, well, look, you know, this is the reason we bought this was because of premium financing. And I've seen um, a friendly neighbor, uh, they bought a very, of one of my properties, they bought a very large complex and they're fighting a reassessment because even though they put a certain amount of money into the property and it's a large complex. Like, um, you know, they're arguing that, hey, you know, it's gonna take, uh, we paid a premium because um, there's not a lot of property around like this, but it was severely distressed. And then we're not gonna see, see a return on our, on, on our investment for X amount of years. And so I, I think oftentimes, um, rather than just try and fight the assessment as a, as a fight, uh, sometimes you can go in and, and negotiate and create a situation where um, you know you, you talk to the board that. So here, there's there's a board of folks that uh, they work for the school district, for instance, at, you know the appropriate school districts, and say they flag these properties and they, and they try and increase your your taxes. So as the property owner, um, you, you know you have you have to go in with with a, a, a realistic approach to say, hey, look, I know these you know these taxes are going to go up, but hey, I bought a property that. Um, and here's why we paid more for it, or here's, uh, here's this, you know, here's the story and here's how long of the time it's going to take to, to increase the taxes. And sometimes, you you know, getting a little bit more personal and, and, um, you still want an attorney involved and you still want to be able to, um, someone experienced with, with that type of, um, you know, that type of appeal. But I think that oftentimes if, if you, you know kind of go and do it with a positive intention and, and, and are and truly are you know, if you are at it doing a value add to the property and things like that, um, you know you, uh, uh, you you know you're able to you're able to kind of create you know some sort of negotiation that um, that those boards will oftentimes like um, at least in smaller areas are typically friendly. I mean I, I, you know, I don't want to jinx myself and, mm-hmm. and get into a situation where we, you know your taxes double, but I think you can oftentimes negotiate um, what that what that actual raise would be. But when it, to answer your question, though, when it comes to underwriting, you know, we'll typically still budget that, eight, you know, that common level ratio, which is 80% of the purchase price to say, hey, you know, when we're budgeting worst case scenario, here's what the taxes are and here's what we have. So here's what we have to budget. And hey, great, if they don't get raised, you know, for five years or they don't get raised at all, then we've we lucked out. But they, they've not, um, you know, we live in an area where they don't ex- they they don't look at every single transaction. I mean, they, they've I've been fortunate in some instances where uh, the taxes have stayed the same, and I've paid a lot more than um, what what the uh, you know uh, what the previous owner did, but they kept the taxes the same. So they're not as aggressive as as other areas. Uh, but that being said, um, you know maybe it's just maybe it's just a matter of time before they really you know um, see it. And I just think it's always a matter of when you underwrite, you have to plan for the worst and plan for those increases. But when they come, like. Try to negotiate and try to, try to fight those increases because more often than not, you, you can have some, some level of, of compromise.
1: Absolutely. Yeah, yeah, I'm surprised that you can negotiate to that level, which is, makes sense, right? I mean, it's just some county, I think uh, they are not very flexible or becoming yeah. hard. So, what about insurance? I mean, do you get a lot of uh, snowstorm and uh, storms in that in uh, Pennsylvania? I know it's uh, I know it happens, but can you tell us how how's the insurance yeah. cost uh, yeah. that you when you underwrite?
2: Our winters are terrible. I mean, it, well, if you like the ski and you like outdoor stuff in the winter, um, but yeah, so we uh, um, I, I guess our insurance does cover. You know, it does cover for things like like you know a few winters ago there was. We had a terrible snowstorm. It ended up being the second highest or third highest snowfall of all time mm-hmm. in the U.S. and the major metro was almost 200 inches of snow that fell that winter. It was, wow. it was disgusting, but there was a lot of roof damage and, and gutter damage and all sorts of building damage. Um, and, and so I think insurance companies build that into the, you know, they build that into their underwriting. Um, but yeah, you, you plan for those things. You know, we also... Um, as I built my business from a practical standpoint, I've always tried to hire maintenance guys that can handle like your general things. Like, I, you know, if, you know, um, if I call a contractor to repair gutters and soffit and yeah, he, he may build $10,000, but I know that I could have my guys in the house do it for $3,000. So there's, you know, we try to take an approach where if there's a lot of stuff that we can fix, we do it ourselves, But here, yeah, really, the winters are the worst things that can happen, and, and so you know you have to you know you have to kind of build that into your 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 plan. Um, but there's a lot of a lot of things you can do to mitigate damage in the winter, and, and it just becomes a, a different um, you know just a different analysis. I mean, I'm sure people that own properties and, and you know uh, like where you're at in Texas or, or Arizona where it gets really really hot, um, there's other things that they have to do to um, you know, to plan out you know for, for insurance or. If you if you live in you know a hurricane area, same same thing. So I think that you know when you underwrite from an insurance perspective, especially on the larger deals, they're going to give you a plan. They're going to tell you, hey, these are the things we need you to do. Um, and and so oftentimes, as the owner operator, you have to take care of those those issues, whether it's deferred maintenance or just ongoing maintenance. Um, you know, a lot of your listeners might know that the, the lender is going to ask for for those repairs, so that that keeps you from having you know, it's that routine maintenance and the ongoing maintenance that you have to do to a property to ensure that you're not just like, you know, waiting for some big insurance claim to happen to, to, to you know, um, put money back in the property. So and they force, you know, I mean, in a sense, the lender's forcing you to, to make sure you keep up with your property.
1: Got it. Got it. Got it. So you self-manage your own property and you started from quads and duplexes. Right. Is that right? Correct. Yeah. Right. So what do you think is an advantage to self-manage and what is the disadvantage of yeah. self-managing these large apartment complexes where you're yeah. buying like 200 and 100 units right now?
2: I mean, I think um, I'll start with the disadvantage. And I think the disadvantage is then, um, you know, you're at some level, you're always involved with managing employees, managing. So you're dealing with those people, you're, you're dealing with uh, tenants and their problems. and, and now you know, at our level where I've got a, a number of employees, I, I, I don't have to really get involved at the tenant level too much um, anymore, but that, that's sort of the problem is that you're, you're, you know, you know, you're going to find yourself in the mix and, and dealing with situations too, too close to the, you know, it's, it's all too close to home. And, um, you know, so if you're a passive investor, you know, you're just getting a return on your money. Um, so when you self-manage, you're really, you know, you're earning that kind of like extra return that you get. Um, but, but the advantage of self-managing, I think, you know, you can control, uh, the property better. You know, you have a better handle on what's going on because you're right at the front lines. Um, I think with a lot of syndicators, at least, uh, well, even people that have smaller portfolios and if they try to get a third party manager, that that's the hardest part of the business is finding quality third party mm-hmm. management. And I think if, you know, um, somebody said it once and it's not entirely true, but, um, you know, somebody said to me once that no one's ever going to manage it as well as the owner. And um, you know, I feel like if you have your skin in the game, you know, if you self-manage it, um, you're going to make sure things go right. Like, like the idea that I jumped out and tried to fill 16 units when I was between property managers. Where if that was with a third party manager, well, oh well, right. And and I can um, I can manage you know my property manager and say, hey, look, you know, you have to be refreshing the ads every day on Apartments.com. I need you to track your leads and follow up with people and you can control the process to make sure that you're at the occupancy level that you want. um, Making sure that your maintenance calls are being followed up on. Um, But that is a little little bit of a headache, but at the same point, you know, that'd be, um, you earn that. I mean, if you self-manage, you're getting uh, typically in a syndication, you're going to have, you know, the property management fee, the asset management fee. Um, So yeah, it's work, but you know, it's, it's, it's extra income. And, and if it's something you enjoy doing, um, you know, leading a team of of people to manage the property, um, you know, it can be a lot of fun and rewarding too.
1: Yeah, it's it's uh, it's very rewarding because now you are you are doing the whole pipeline, right, end to end. How are you controlling your deal, right? So, mm-hmm. so let's go back to your a bit more personal stuff, right? Uh, what do you think is like top three things that is uh, your secret sauce to your success?
2: Okay, um, well, I'd say one would be. Uh, you know, not giving up, just always maintaining a positive attitude. It sounds so simple, but, um, I mean, there are literally things every day, as you know, in this business that Mm -hmm. make you question, like, why am I doing this? Why am I still, this is driving me nuts. And, and, um, so I just think, you know, always keeping it, you know, that positive attitude because, you know, what you focus on expands. And if you're focused on the negative, then all you're going to see is the negative. And so, but, but it's true in any business, not just apartments. So. Um, so that's one thing. Um, number two, I, have had a lot of success with, uh, getting off market deals, whether it's been the 205 unit or the, um, you know, or, or a duplex when I was starting out. Um, you know, just really, uh, see the value of building relationship with sellers, uh, building relationships with brokers. And, um, so it's that relationship building part where, um, just try to take a genuine interest in other people and become friends with them. And, and, um, you know, hey, someday down the line we, we may do business and it, it always seems to come back in, in, in spades, you know, later on. And so that's probably like the second thing I think I'm uh, pretty good at. And, uh, the third thing is just, you know, knowing, you know, uh, you know, knowing what's a good deal and, and being able to, uh, pull the trigger, not overanalyze too much. I know a lot of times you can get stuck in the weeds and in terms of the underwriting and things like that, where, um, you just spend too much time dealing with, uh, you know, just analyzing it and not pulling the trigger um so that, that can be a fault at times but i think it but i think that's worked in, in terms of being able to, to take down uh you know properties and, and just make a decision and, and move forward and, and uh you know just and, and but knowing when to pull back and knowing it's you know when things aren't, aren't right either so yeah
1: interesting and why do you do what you're doing every day
2: yeah i mean as i said earlier i you know when i started out i was you know i was 23 years old and I wanted to be a millionaire. That was great early on, but well, then what? You know, I mean, uh, so it, you know, at some point, it became the ability to, you know, be free of a job and not and not that for its only sake, but to be around for my family and um and friends and and uh, you, know, you see so many people slave away at, at, at a day job and you know die young because you know they they've traded their time for money. So it evolved into that, and, and really now it's you know I feel like you know. Uh, creating better properties in our city, you know, helping helping improve our area, um, providing you know valid and quality employment um, on a scale t- uh, to people that that are looking for, for work. Um, you know, being able to again have that freedom to spend with my family, and and again, to have, you know, being able to um, live a large and rich life, but being able to give back to others, and um, you know, using some of the. Um, you know, using our, our platform and, our, and uh, you know the kind of money we make to be able to make a better world for other people and, and, and give back. So, mm,
1: very noble uh, means. And is there a proud moment in your whole real estate career that you think I'm really, really proud of? A thing that you did right, and that's something that you can never forget.
2: Mm. <laughs> you know, I, the easy answer is probably always like the most recent deal you know you've done. I, I think yes. that. Um, for me, probably one of the prouder moments, um, was just being able to walk away from the day job. Um, you know, that was, I I was making a really, really good income and, and there was probably like a four or five year period there where I just kept saying, I'm going to leave my job. I'm going to leave my job. And I just finally getting the courage to be able to like walk away and take that, um, have that confidence in myself that I can, you know, that I can do this and, 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 um, um, have it, you know, be a sustainable living. I just, you know, for whatever reason, you know, was probably filled with more self-doubt than I needed to. So just being able to just kind of like barrel forward and, and do it, um, you know, I was, I was really proud of that moment.
1: Yeah, that's, yeah, that follows you right until the end. That's, that's uh, it's a it's memory, right? So awesome. And I think that's what we have, Jason. Why not you tell our audience on how, uh, how they can get in touch with you and uh, where's the best place to reach you?
2: Sure, um, if anybody wants to get on my calendar and have, have a chat, um, they, can, they can find me on LinkedIn, just at, at Jason Perro, uh, they can find me on Facebook as well. Um, you know, if you want to add it to the show notes too, you can get my email, you know, jasonperro at yahoo.com and then my my cell phone, um, uh, I can get that out as well too. Um, okay, <laughs>
1: you don't have to give it on the, on the okay. podcast, but uh, yeah, it's up to you. Okay. Okay, so awesome. Thank you very much for joining us, Jason. I really enjoyed learning about the Pennsylvania market and how did you grow from, uh, you know, from quads and duplexes to like almost 900 units right now under management. And, and uh, I did learn a lot and I'm sure my audience will too. Thank you very much. Okay. Thank you, James.
0: That's it for this episode. If you'd like to learn even more, check out James's free audiobook. book, It's the audio version of his best-selling book on passive investing. You can get the audiobook completely free, along with other valuable resources, by visiting www.achieveinvestmentgroup.com forward slash free audiobook. Also, be sure to join our Facebook group, too. To find it, just do a Facebook search for Multifamily Investors Group. Thanks for listening. Join us again for another episode next week. See you then.